You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The Department of Defense has accused the Pentagon of lacking a comprehensive plan to identify and treat tens of thousands of troops who may suffer from traumatic brain injury. Pentagon research indicates that up to a quarter of the troops serving in Iraq and Afghanistan may have at least mild traumatic brain injury. 30% of the casualties treated at Walter Reed Army Medical Center have been already diagnosed with TBI. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is a neurologist and pain medicine specialist in Los Angeles. Welcome, Vernon. Well, thank you, Leslie. Great to be here. Dr. Williams, proper diagnosis and management of traumatic brain injury has been a hot topic in both the civilian and the military news recently. Let's talk about post-concussive syndrome. What is that? Post-concussive syndrome is when people have persistence of symptoms or even physical examination and other objective abnormalities after a concussion. Keep in mind that under normal circumstances, the overwhelming majority of the time, concussion symptoms resolve spontaneously. In fact, that's, that's part of how we define concussion. Is these are transient neurologic symptoms and signs. But there are certain situations where people can have persistent or continuous symptoms that can last for days or weeks or months or longer after a concussion, and we would call that post-concussion syndrome. So that can involve a variety of different symptoms. The most common kinds of symptoms that are described have to do with persistent headache. Often that headache has migraine features, so they may have nausea with or without vomiting associated with the headache. They may have photophobia or phonophobia associated with the headache. Again, it often meets all criteria for migraine. People can also have a baseline or chronic daily headache in addition to these episodic migraineous kinds of headaches. But in any case, persistent headache is a typical symptom. And then people may have a variety of other things. They may have dizziness or frank vertigo. They may have difficulty with attention and concentration. They may feel that their personality is is different. They may have problems with memory. They may fatigue easily or, or be very irritable. And in some cases, people can have frank anxiety and depression and other psychologic and psychiatric symptoms. How often do you see these kinds of things after concussions? The post-concussive symptoms are fairly uncommon with respect to severe symptoms that are extremely prolonged. Now, there are certain studies that have looked at this and have shown that up to 60% of people who have concussion will have some degree of symptoms three to four weeks after the concussion is over. That's on the high side, but, but that certainly has been reported. The overwhelming majority of concussions, though, are, are short-lasting. They're transient events. They resolve spontaneously, so most won't involve these the severe post-concussive symptoms. They do seem to be more common in people who've had repeat or frequent concussions, more than one, and that's something to keep in mind and and to consider. In fact, when people have repeated concussions, in some cases it it appears as if those post-concussive symptoms become more significant and last longer each time. And one of the, the problems that I have in my practice is when litigation is involved. How do you diagnose this? All this seems so vague to me. How do you, how do you know what's real, what might be malingering? You're absolutely right. That, that's a very difficult situation because most of the time the diagnostic imaging is completely normal. Most of the time physical examination is normal. So you're dealing with a person describing symptoms. In the absence of clear objective findings and objective evidence, that can be very difficult, particularly when there's litigation involved. But there are certain things that you can do. 
For instance, to the extent that you can compare objectively their function pre-concussion with their function post-concussion, that can be helpful. And, and one of the things I'm talking about is the existence of these neuropsychological tests that can be done for that objective information regarding brain function. For instance, if the person is going to be participating in an activity that places them at risk for concussion, then we advocate pre-participation neuropsychological testing to get a baseline on them. So we will get a baseline assessment of that person's verbal memory, visual memory, speed of mental processing, reaction times, these kinds of things. And that can be done very quickly and easily and efficiently using computerized testing. 35, 40 minutes you can gain that information. You have that baseline. And then if the person is involved in activity that puts them at risk and they report concussion and post-concussive symptoms, you can compare to that baseline for any objective evidence of, of dysfunction. It's very difficult to trick those tests. If the person is malingering, that's usually immediately evident because the reaction times and those kinds of things that would be graded by computer would be so far off base that it's pretty evident. And then there are other parts of the, of the test that kind of reinforce whether the person is being objective and giving full effort or not. But that's one way to do it. If you can refer to baseline or pre-injury function and compare that to post-injury function. Even if you don't have a baseline, you can still do some of these neuropsychological tests and compare it to normals. So there are age and sex match controls that can be compared to with respect to a person's memory, verbal and visual, their speed of mental processing, their reaction times, and what have you. And then, again, you can identify whether there is any evidence of abnormality as compared to a control group, and that can give you objective information. So the key in those situations is to try to find some objective information, and admittedly that can be difficult, but you look for consistency with respect to their report of symptoms. You look for information from family members or loved ones or coworkers that can help corroborate that information if possible. Obviously, physical examination is, is helpful in diagnostic imaging if there are abnormalities there, but, but there frequently aren't. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is neurologist Dr. Vernon Williams. We're discussing the management of post-concussion syndrome. Now, Dr. Williams, it sounds to me like given the huge risk of our troops in Iraq having possible traumatic brain injury, that we really should do this baseline testing on them before they go. You're absolutely right. In fact, there are segments of the military that are looking into this, and as far as I know, I'm not directly involved, but I've been made aware, been informed that there is some of this pre-participation screening going on now to, to collect that kind of baseline information. And as I said, even if you don't do the screening, there's still some value in doing some of those neuropsychological tests when the person has symptoms or post-concussion so that a comparison could be made to, to age and sex match normals. But you're right, this is one of the ways to objectively identify neurologic dysfunction because in many cases with these post-concussive syndromes, there's a really a paucity of objective findings. Imaging is often normal, examination is often normal, so you're dealing with symptoms. Going to sports for a moment, and former NFL player Ted Johnson, who was a linebacker for three New England Patriots championship teams, his physician has suggested that the concussions that Johnson sustained playing football have left him with cognitive impairment and depression similar to those of Alzheimer's disease. Is that a risk? 
Well, you know, Leslie, that is a really hot topic right now, and for good reason, because there is some evidence that if a person suffers repeat concussions, there's some relationship to Alzheimer's. And, and so far, what the evidence has shown is that repeat concussions are thought to lower the age at which people will show signs of dementia. So rather than there being a significant relationship between you know, multiple concussions and, and development of, of dementia, it seems that the age at which people will show signs of dementia is lowered when there have been repeat concussions. This is an issue that is gaining lots of attention now uh, and for good reason, and it's being studied more, more closely now. And I think the jury is still out, but there certainly does appear to be enough evidence that this is considerable. I think that in this particular player's case, I don't think that that's horribly uncommon or something that we would be horribly shocked by, that a number of concussions sustained over the course of years may result in prolonged neurologic deficit or put the person at risk for some uh, chronic neurologic disability. This is gaining more attention now. It's being looked at a lot more closely, and I think that I wouldn't be shocked if there is some relationship there. Certainly another thing that's been in the news, Andre Waters, remember him playing for the Philadelphia Eagles? He committed suicide last fall at just 44 years old, and the neuropathologist in Pittsburgh that examined his brain determined that there was significant concussion-related damage that may have played a role in the depression that preceded his death. I'm wondering if we need to think about evaluating these people on a regular basis for things not only like cognitive dysfunction, but maybe mood disorders as well. I think you are absolutely right. I think you just hit it on the head. One of the things we try to do at this Sports Concussion Institute is we, we try to have a comprehensive program that not only addresses the pre-participation issue. So prior to participation, prior to the season, we advocate baseline testing, neuropsychological testing that looks at those indicators that I mentioned, memory, speed of mental process and reaction times, but also queries for and looks for any evidence of other neurologic, neuropsychiatric or neuropsychological conditions epilepsy, migraine headache, depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, those kinds of things, so that we can identify prior to participation what patients or players may have pre-existing conditions as well. That helps guide our management of concussions if the person suffers one during the season. And then if that occurs, we are very much involved with with this kind of process of, of what we would call active surveillance. And so we want to continue to reassess these players if they've suffered a concussion with neuropsychological testing and, again, reassess whether or not there's worsening of not only those cognitive functions that we've talked about, but any development or worsening of some of the other markers of depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, so on and so forth. And then we need to follow these things over time. I think that you're absolutely right. Surveillance is important, and I think the surveillance should start prior to participation and continue on through this period of participation and even afterwards so that we can answer those kinds of questions. There was a, a study I looked over at over 1,500 former NFL players, and the rate of depression for retired players who had had five or more concussions was three times higher than that for retired players who had not had a history of concussion. So again, these kinds of things, these kinds of questions continue to confront us, and I think we we do the best service to patients 
and players, whether we're talking about professionals or whether we're talking about weekend warriors or Pop Warner, you know, we, we need to have that kind of information so that we can best manage people. And I would add we should extend the same courtesy to our veterans in the Iraqi war as we do for football players. You are absolutely right. I don't think that you could understate that. That is absolutely right. The kinds of forces that these veterans are exposed to while they're helping protect our country and and fighting in war and, and serving our country are phenomenal. And to expect that all of that is just over <laughs> when they come back and that they wouldn't have you know, persistent or prolonged symptoms and wouldn't uh, require management of those prolonged symptoms, I think is, is short-sighted. You're absolutely right. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Vernon Williams. We've been discussing diagnosis and management of concussions. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Please send your comments and questions via email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.